0: You are listening to Devils in Dirtbags. Season 1, Child Molesting Priests. Episode 14, Richard Levine Got Away with Murder. Listener Warning. This episode deals with the sexual abuse and death of a 13-year-old boy at the hands of a serial child molesting Catholic priest.
1: Due to the credible and significant evidence that has been assembled in the last year that incriminates richard levine i am announcing today that the investigation into the murder of danny
0: Croto is now officially closed that's the voice of district attorney anthony galuni speaking to reporters on may 24th 2021
1: regrettably due to levine's death there will be no prosecution
0: or trial on May 21st, 2021, just as police claimed they were getting ready to arrest and charge him with Danny's murder, the 80-year-old ex-priest died in a Western Mass Hospital reportedly from COVID.
1: While it didn't come in time for Danny's parents to hear them, I hope that the answers provided today are helpful to Danny's remaining family and the concerned public.
0: This episode is about Richard Levine, which means it should be called Suspected Murderer Part 5. In Parts 1, 2, and 3, we report in great detail Levine's crimes and sins against dozens and dozens of young Catholic boys during the 1970s and 1980s. In Episode 11... Suspected Murderer Part 4, I knock on Levine's door, and he invited me in for chat. This episode of Devils and Dirtbags has a different format. We're joined by a friend of mine, a journalist from Western Massachusetts, to discuss the news of Levine's death and the DA's decision to close the case file on the murder of Danny Croto. We'll listen to audio clips during which Richard Levine admits to seeing Danny floating in the Chickabee River on that fateful night and not doing a damn thing about it. And we'll also listen to a series of never-before-aired clips from my interview with murderer Richard Levine in February 2019, the only time the ex-priest ever sat down with a reporter... Our guest is the anonymous writer behind the Hell's Acres blog, where over the years he's published many posts about Danny Crodo's murder. Back in the early aughts when he was working as a print journalist, our guest became pals with Danny's dad, and he and Carl Crodo Sr. discussed the murder case many times. Currently, my friend is working as a communications professional in Western Mass., in order to stay out of trouble with his corporate bosses who might not approve of his unvarnished view of the child molesting priest scandal of Springfield Mass he doesn't use his real name for the hells acres blog and we'll refrain from using his name today rest assured i can vouch for him visit his website at hells acres that's one word hells He grew up in 16 acres, a Springfield neighborhood not far from my childhood stomping grounds of Indian Orchard. He graduated from Cathedral High School, my alma mater, with one of my older brothers. Most importantly, though, he's an experienced investigative journalist and a great writer and an expert on the murder of Danny Croto. What does Hell's Acres mean?
2: Uh, Hell's Acres is a play on the neighborhood 16 Acres in Springfield, Massachusetts, where I grew up. There is a seamier side to uh, 16 Acres as well. Uh, uh, One of the uh, undercurrents growing up in this neighborhood, especially if you're a certain age, is uh, the unsolved murder of uh, Danny Croto. This blog is a lot of seamy stuff, but also a lot of humorous stuff. Growing up in 16 Acres, and you really can escape the the legacy of this murder. It's just it's coming in the background constantly, and especially in the last week.
0: As far as I can always remember, uh, because I was only uh, four when Danny was murdered, I've just always known that urban legend of uh, the priest that killed the altar boy because I was an altar boy. So, like every altar boy, knew there was this really heinous murder at the hands of a priest. It was nine
2: when uh, when Danny was killed, within a week or two of the murder, there was talk in the neighborhood. Let's put it this way. At the end of April, when my grandmother had her funeral mass at St. Mary's, Father Levine did the funeral mass, and I knew it. I looked up there and said, there he is.
0: Your grandmother's funeral mass was said by Richard Levine, we now know, is a priest who got away with murder. And you knew it as a young lad. You knew because of the gossip. Yeah. You did a great multi-part series on Danny Croto's murder. When did that run? Appropriately
2: in April of uh, 2017. And I believe it's today, I think it was was part 11 or 12. I can't even remember. Uh, Put it down after nine or 10 parts and then resumed it. You know, a lot of people think this is the final chapter, but there's still still so many unanswered questions.
0: And we're going to get to some of those today because what we're going to do is talk about in detail the latest findings. But first, before we even get into that, I know we both know members of the Croto family. I I want to express my condolences again and again and again to them. What a horrible situation to have to go through. Maybe uh, there'll be some feeling of relief knowing that their accusations were justified because they knew early on as well and they were ostracized by some people in some of the parishes they belonged to you know nobody wanted to hang out with the people who pointed the finger at the priest as we know now Richard Levine got away with murder this tape we're about to hear is a little bit more than 5 minutes but it's cut into sections and it was provided by the DA after a series of 11 hours of interviews between Richard Levine with the state police detective. I've uh, put in a FOIA, Freedom of Information, for the entire 11 hours, uh, and they're going to have to redact some stuff out of it, so I'll eventually get that 11 hours of tape. Interesting to note that these interviews began on April 14th, which is the 49th anniversary of the disappearance of Danny, the finding of Danny's body floating in the Chicopee River. That was on the 15th. And on the 16th, Richard Levine was found walking along the riverbank by one of the investigating officers, which was very curious. And uh, we'll talk more about that later. These are the, the, the words and the voice of Richard Levine and the state police investigator.
3: You know, when we was speaking about Danny Grodo for two days now, um, he, he was a strange... Um, Interesting kid, you know, not too bright. Always trying to make jokes about things, and if you didn't answer, he he increases voice. <laughs> yeah, you turn around, and you feel like saying, "Will you shut up?"
0: first I want to point out the way that ends kind of abruptly like that. That's the DA's edit of this tape. There's probably more words immediately after that, that we're not hearing. You can hear his anger, the ready anger in his voice when he says, you know, will you shut up? The thing that drives me crazy about this is how he, once again, has, he says something about Danny wasn't too bright. Richard Levine is the only person I've ever heard say that Danny Croto wasn't bright. There's never any other reference to that. Danny Croto was a normal 13-year-old kid, but for some reason Levine feels he's gotta drag him.
2: Back in nineteen seventy-two, the police record he said he's thirteen, but about a ten mentally. I found it interesting that he said we've been talking about Danny Croto for a couple of days. You know, I'd love to hear these tapes in their full context that it's almost like uh, Trooper McNally used talking about Danny as a vehicle to get Dick Levine to open up. We're not going to get him to talk about his role in the murder. Let's get him to talk about Danny and Danny's personality, his relationship with Danny and how Danny could annoy him. When I first heard this, I thought, wow, what, it's weird all this talk about Danny. Um It might have been a way to just uh, break the ice and um, kind of break him down a little bit.
0: Part of the investigative technique of the trooper to use that in an interrogation. We'll talk more about his interrogation as the tape goes on. Why did you go down there with him? To the river? Yes.
3: He wanted to see the waterfall. Okay. Up close.
2: Then what happened?
3: So I took him on the other side of uh, the Shikafee River, and we walked up and down, and uh, that's all I can remember about that. Why did you hit him when he was down by the riverbank? Why would you do it down there? I don't remember hitting him down by the river, right? But giving him a good shove.
2: You did give him a good shove? And why did you give him a good shove?
3: Because he was being... What should I say? Well, for the same reason, you'd probably um, push your own son and say, like, Hey, Billy, you don't do that. And you know? I
0: uh-huh. uh, Again, I feel for the Croto family having to listen to this tape. And he's revealing a lot of things uh, for the first time. And I want to know why the cop didn't come down harder on him. I mean, we know details from the crime scene. Forensics showed a pool of blood underneath the uprights of the bridge, how Danny's body was dragged on the ground for 90 feet to the edge of the river thrown in. We have very little physical evidence in this case other than the physical evidence of the scene that day where it's obvious Danny was attacked, underneath the bridge, the footprints, the scuffle marks, all that, the rocks, and then the sign of him being dragged down. I'm curious why the detective didn't follow up with a little more of an honest portrayal of what's going on. Listen, Levine, this is what we got. I'd prefer a little harder technique, especially knowing this guy's on his last legs. And I think in that tape, you can hear, really, in the silences, the beeping of the machines in the background, the life support stuff. His voice has changed a little bit. He's also on meds. He's in his end of days. Uh, so we have to take that into account. And the guy's a friggin' liar. And he's a murderer. And we know that now.
2: Him mentioning Danny wanted to see the falls. Uh, you know, the, the DA had mentioned that he was being cagey and evasive. And we know for this entire investigation going back decades, he could get pretty cute. Was this a way of just saying, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I'm talking about a, a scene that wasn't even at the murder scene, uh, you know, a whole nother scene? The shove, I, I think, w- the, the, the pregnant pause uh, during all this, I think there was just a flood of emotions where he's just kind of confronting what Danny did to, quote, deserve this. And when he keeps referring to the shove, He is acknowledging, I think, the shove setting off a violent chain of events in which maybe Danny retaliated from the shove, and and the rest is history.
0: I just want to interrupt there. Levine's a big dude, especially compared to a 13-year-old boy who is drunk, had a blood alcohol content of twice the legal limit of an adult. So whatever Levine did, obviously a shove or anything is bad because he's a little kid can you
2: imagine being a member of the Croto family and hearing his little grunt at the end in describing the shove my god
3: explain to me how you came across the body i just saw it floating you saw it floating and how did you know it was danny the way he was dressed and what did you do after you saw the body in the water I don't remember what I did. I don't remember telling anyone. Did you tell the police? I don't believe I did. I don't believe you did either. Did you confide in any friends?
0: No, it's not something I confide in. Why didn't you do something if you saw the body of a boy floating there, why wouldn't you do something? Because he's a sociopathic murderer. That's why. He He's an evil man. Ugh.
2: Yeah, and he didn't remember what he did afterward. You know, are we getting into, uh, you know, I, I just kind of repressed it or whatever. Uh, you know, my theory is a lot of this. I don't know, can a sociopathic uh, killer repress stuff or revel in it? I don't know, but uh, I don't remember what I did. You know, later on, he says he, he, he went home and came back an hour later. As, you know, as we'll see, there, there, there are contradictions in even his statements to the police, but he, he at least gave them enough. When you say you brought him to the scene, last to see him, had a violent confrontation with him, whether it's a shove or uh, or more, and he goes into more, and then left the scene. And oh, well, somehow he ended up in the river.
0: That's enough to convict. That would have been enough to convict in 1972, when a lot of this stuff was known. And if they'd been tougher on him, who knows? We wouldn't even need his uh, confession or whatever this thing is that he just did, because the evidence would have stood. People are like. He had the means, the, the motive, and the opportunity.
3: I just remember being heartbroken when I saw his body going on the river, knowing I was responsible for giving him a big shove, you know?
0: That sounds like a confession to me.
2: I was responsible. And it's, it's what he doesn't say, I guess. Like, you know, it's the shove... Precipitated a series of events leading to Danny's death. And he's just, he really can't face it. It's uh, this trooper, uh, you know, he can't confuse this trooper with a psychiatrist because he sounds like a state trooper interrogating, but in some weird way, he is a psych- psychiatrist getting to the root of getting the real story. This is Dick Levine not saying, I'm not talking without a lawyer. So I think he knows he's. At the end, and he is just going to well come as close as he as as a sociopath can to admitting it without saying he did it. And you remember
3: seeing him face down in the river? No. And that was after you left him there. No. That was the same day that you left him there. Right. Okay. To my greatest regret. Do
0: you say that's your
3: greatest regret? To my great regret? To your great regret.
0: I don't know if he has regret. I don't think sociopaths have regret. I just don't. Uh, I mean, again, not to belabor this point, he got away with murder. If murdering a 13-year-old boy isn't your greatest regret, what is? <laughs> I, I mean, it could be molesting 65. Molesting. You know, we use the number 60, 6,500. The number is unknowable now. We're finding this out daily. The number is unknowable the number of young boys this man molested. And we know he murdered one young boy that he molested. And he saw him face down in the river. Obviously, he's a murderer.
2: Uh, we find out from other witness statements over the years that he, he uses this murder to uh, th- threaten other kids. Like You could end up like him.
3: If I share this with the public, they probably wouldn't believe it. When I say they wouldn't believe it, they would probably <clears throat> build conjecture around the uh, the revelation that I make. Yes. I'd sooner
2: forget the whole thing, frankly.
0: I'm sure he would like to forget the whole thing.
2: Yeah, build conjecture. Uh <laughs> okay
0: if he was to share this with the public they probably wouldn't believe it well that's probably the one thing i would agree with that richard levine has said
2: uh, there was no one else at the scene according to him according to other statements that were part of this so there's just uh, someone came in out of the blue after you left him there you know who in his right mind would believe that
0: here's one final cut from the da's tape
3: how did you feel when you returned home kind of heavy hearted. Why? Well, he's a nice little kid. Kind of dumb, but still charming in a way. And to see him face down in the water is just uh, not something you'd like to keep in mind.
0: I think he's haunted slightly. Obviously, um, he's still a sociopath. I'm just going to continue this tape here.
3: Do you feel you've put that out of your mind? Yeah, pretty much. Because as far as I know, you've never told this to anyone else before. No, I haven't.
2: Why? Why well, tell it?
0: Well, I know why he wouldn't tell it because he knows he'd get arrested and probably end up in prison.
2: Even a priest in 1972, uh, the public would have a hard time. I think a (laughs) a jury would have not a hard time to convict someone, the last person to see him and had a violent confrontation with him, found him in the river.
0: We're going to switch gears slightly here and listen to the takes from my interview with Richard Levine in February 2019. I had a, about a 50-minute interview, it's the basis of episode 11 of Devils and Dirt Bags.
1: Yes, I, I knew the Croto family. As a matter of fact, uh,
0: <clears throat> I was a suspect in the murder. Oh, I know. I mean, you're kind of famous for that.
1: And, you know, I went down to uh, Boston to, uh, for lie detector tests and they said they cleared me completely.
0: I wasn't there to debate Richard Levine. I door-knocked him. I didn't even expect to get into his house, but he invited me in. We had a 50-minute conversation. I wasn't there to get him to confess, but I wanted to see what his life was like. And this 50-minute visit with him gave me insight into his life. As for him claiming that the lie detector test in Boston cleared him, that's not actually true. The examiner couldn't determine in Boston if Levine was lying or telling the truth. This was back in 1972, just after the murder of Danny Croteau. The church sent Levine and a church lawyer by the last name of Sullivan. They flew to Chicago and took two tests. And that time Levine passed each one. It was a, a polygraph administered by a company that the church hired. And those two tests was good enough for the church. And according to reliable sources, uh, Bishop Christopher Weldon told uh, then-DA Matty Ryan to back off.
2: It's, uh, it's extraordinary all the way out to Chicago, and the, uh, the diocese funds this. It's unorthodox, I, I, <laughs> unprecedented.
0: What about the idea of being cleared completely? Any thoughts on that? First
2: test was due to erratic and inconsistent responses, they were unable to uh, render a uh, an opinion. That, that that that's what the uh, conclusion was inconclusive. It's amazing the deference showing a priest. To, wouldn't it be easier to let investigators get search warrants and <laughs> and. Interview the priest uh, set, instead of sending him to Chicago.
0: Especially since lie detectors aren't admissible for no. so it's useless test anyways. All right, let's continue some more tape here. Do you remember going to the crime scene the next day or the day after? Yeah. Walking along the river yeah. there. Yeah, and the police saw me, and uh, yeah, I was looking for some kind of a clue. Stupid
1: me, you know. Should have stayed away from the place. You know, I was looking in the river. You know, like they might be, find uh, some article that was his, or I don't know what I was thinking, but.
0: Did you know instantly that you were a suspect? But no. like you remember what you were doing the night that Danny was murdered? I have no idea. Yeah. But back then, would you have known? Would you? Oh, yeah. I think I might have read that they said you were maybe at your parents' house. Probably. On a Friday night. So we're playing these tapes to hear what Levine's long-term story, the story he told for decades, He never spoke publicly. He never gave any interviews. He never had to testify in either criminal or civil court. So while we knew that he was seen at the scene of the crime the day after, this is the reason why he went, because he was looking for some sort of clue. I was looking in the river that I might find some article that was his. It's almost a cliche, returning to the scene of the crime.
2: He was fishing for information on how well the investigation was going and what evidence they had gathered so he could spin it later on. He was almost compelled to do this, and he thought he could get, you know, as a priest, he could he could get away with it. Any other person goes on the scene, they're like, sir, you know, we got an investigation. Can you please leave? Instead, it's, oh, I know the boy. and." I know the family, and yeah, it's almost like he couldn't help himself. I I need to find out what they know, and they they might share it with me.
0: It's almost a sense of entitlement as a a sociopathic murderer, and also kind of the way priests were revered at that time and never questioned. He could get away with that because he wore the collar. Even though he's acting cool and calm at that point, we know... That he's freaking out because uh, in the in the following day he's actually interviewed and we're going to return to that original 1972 interview in a second. But he gets in touch with another priest in Chicopee and says, "Oh, they're after me. They're after me." He's freaking out. And then Fitzsimmons and another cop went to the St. Mary's rectory where Levine was, uh, his room was when he wasn't staying at his mom and dad's house over in Chicopee, and the pastor wouldn't let them in. My question always was. Why didn't they get a search warrant? Why didn't they get a search warrant for his car? Why didn't they get a search warrant to check his parents' house? Especially since Danny's mother, Bunny, had told the police that Danny had gone to Levine's parents' house, spent the night there on many occasions.
2: Yes. And, uh, you know, the question he asked if a rock were used and thrown in a river, would there still be blood on it? I have to think uh, people have speculated for decades that he. You know, he might have gotten, uh, he knew he must have gotten a little bit of blood on the rock when he hit him. He must have looked at his fingernail and maybe split a fingernail or something. I I wonder if if the investigators actually asked him, can I look at your hands? You know, I don't know. What a thing to ask.
0: Uh, uh, There are two questions he asked. And this was actually in the interview the next day with the investigators in 1972, Simmons, who, who led the investigation, and uh, Radwanski of uh, the Chicopee Police Department. He says, hey, can I ask a couple of questions? And the detective's like, yeah, sure. And he's like, would the blood still be on the stone if it was thrown in the river? And the second one is, how would the tire prints that you take be of any help because of all the uh, motor vehicle traffic here underneath the bridge? So two very odd questions for the parish priest to ask two days after the murder of a 13-year-old. He
2: was fishing, you know, he wanted to know, like, if they were going to be honest with him, like, oh, yeah, we got got good prints of this tire. He was thinking, you know, if he hadn't already, he was on his way to get his his tires changed. He just wanted to, because almost confirmation of it, what a question to ask. Oh, you know, (laughs) tire marks at this murder scene, even though there were There are many, you know, I I would assume some of the freshest ones would be uh, relevant.
0: And you're reporting on this. uh, You had an actual uh, relationship with Danny's father in the way that you talked to him about this case on occasion. What did Carl Croto Sr. feel about the theory that Bishop Weldon was putting the pressure on Maddie Ryan not to investigate, hence no search warrants for the house, the parents' house, the car, the rectory?
2: He had a you know a pretty what's reported as a you know a clash with Ryan a while later when Ryan said where can I get 12 years to convict a priest Carl always felt that Levine had something on Weldon I don't know he just said had something on him and as we're finding out later on um, you know Weldon is a suspect in at least one molestation so
0: yeah you're always too kind and polite with this Bishop Christopher Weldon who was the bishop uh, in the 1970s in Springfield. We're going to be hearing a lot more about him. He's a child molesting priest. We haven't heard anything about Bishop McGuire, who succeeded him as bishop, other than being an enabler. And then, of course, as we talk about in Devils and Dirtbags, Bishop Dupre raped at least two boys on numerous occasions. So the bishops, during the time that Levine was suspected of murder, during the time that he was molesting all these children, they themselves were molesters as well. And when people hear that and learn that for the first time, their jaws always drop to the ground. And it's, even now just saying it, it's just heartbreaking. You know, it's the wolf guarding the hen house.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the private investigator, R.C. Stevens, had years later uncovered a sex ring involving priests and lay people operating and in- Even in 1972, uh, you know, later on, uh, this is kind of common knowledge. In 72, I think publicity about this would have led to the bishop's resignation.
0: And have settled, you know, millions of dollars uh, for upwards of, I believe, 60 victims.
1: Yeah, that's absurd.
0: None of that happened? You never molested any of those kids? None. None of those kids that came forward never...
1: There were, um, the brother of, um, one of the, let's see, who was, who, what was the name of the kid? John, yeah, and... He shit in his pants. His father asked him if he could stay at the rectory while he went to town, into town, I said, sure. Which was just a ploy on the father's part. And the kid shit in his pants, and I told him, I said, take your clothes off and go and take a shower. And then I put a towel around him and, and dried the clothes off and gave them back to him. And uh, that, that led to the police coming over, and, saying that I had molested the child, you know? And I said, no, I told him what happened, but, so then I went back to, that's. I think that's when I went to Chicago for uh, the lie detector test.
0: Weren't there two kids that accused you yeah. of molestation? Yeah. And the other one was older, right? And he went on trips with you and stuff? Yeah. You went to Arizona, supposedly? Yeah,
1: I took him to Arizona to see the Grand Canyon.
0: He alleged that you molested him during that trip. No, that's not true. You saying he, you didn't molest him, or he didn't allege that?
1: Uh, no, there was <laughs> there was nothing to do with, with. As a matter of fact, at the uh, when I pled guilty to slapping the kid on the ass, at the brother, um, after the the court hearing, was there, and he says, uh, "I just want to tell you, I feel very badly about this." He says. Uh, you're one of the nicest priests I've ever met, and uh, nothing ever happened between us. It, this is just, you know, uh, what happened to my brother, is made up by my dad, because the father uh, wanted to um, really kind of run the parish. He, he had a big group of Catholics there, we'd met every night, and he'd have priests come in to say mass for them. Uh, he wanted to have more influence in the parish. And I said, no, I went, no way. And that's when he asked me if I could take care of his son while he went into town. Sure, and, that's, and afterwards that's all he needed. You know.
0: So that, you're saying that was a setup to yeah. get you out of the church? Again, this guy is just a bald-faced liar. I mean, there's so many things wrong with that story. It's not accurate in the least, but I don't even want to you know, talk about it too much other than we have unbelievable evidence of serial molestation of two boys in that family, also of at least a half dozen more. There were 13 charges he was arrested on. He d- did a plea bargain when the trial started and the jury had been seated. And uh, cop a plea. Uh, a sympathetic judge took care of him. So he's just lying, bald face lying. There, there's there, there's no there's no truth in those in that narrative that he he just <laughs> spun. There's zero truth.
2: For a second, he kind of assumes that you haven't done your homework and know about this when you clearly do. You you know you you mention certain details and you know the the boy's statements to police and we've both read them, they're lengthy, they're genuine, they're as detailed as Levine's explanations are, wooden and unbelievable. The father wanted to run the parish, so he coached the kid to make up all this abuse.
0: Doesn't pass the, the straight face test whatsoever. And uh, we talk about this in episode two, when I go into the, the graphic detail about the, for some people would call it a cult, that this, uh, the two boys... Just two of, I mean, we're talking hundreds of victims. I mean, two boys, their family, strict Catholics, part of a weird Catholic subcult that was a weird sex cult at one point. And Levine and his lawyer, uh, when he was arrested, tried to make it like it was this weird conspiracy about the sex cult. And then all these other things came forward from kids from Springfield and also up from Shelburne Falls area. So he's just lying. The plea deal was supposed to give him some prison time, but the judge, who was a real jerk and an idiot, uh, threw that out and and sent him to St. Luke's, a rest home almost, a clinic for a bad priest. And then uh, when he gets back, all these lawsuits start, and that's what we'll talk about here. When you got back from that is when all the lawsuits started and that started to add up. There were all these people. Yeah, I And think got a lot-
1: in the diocese, rather than question them, just said, okay, you know. I said, that's a hell of a thing. You know, they should just investigate. But then, as far as I know, they didn't.
0: So you're saying all these cases, they just flipped on. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Do you feel like you, you were abandoned by the church? Oh, yeah. Are you resentful of that?
1: Uh, no, there's no resentment in me.
0: That was a long time ago. That was uh, 93, let's say. So almost 30 years, 25 to 20. Uh, Were you, have you been working at all? Have you had any? No,
1: I have a small income that comes in from an annuity that's running out in about five years. But hopefully I'll be dead by then.
0: <laughs>
1: but I don't know. My dad was 93. My mother was 90.
0: I laughed when he said, hopefully I'm going to be dead. it was very uncomfortable terrible interview for me i don't feel it was my best work other than an attempt really just to gain insight into it i mean i wasn't going to get him to confess unless i beat it out of him
2: but you're the only person that conducted an interview in all these years right until the cops till the cops and uh, he i guess he was ready to spill some of the beans
0: how'd you get the annuity was that from the church or from friends um
1: There was a, a, I forget his name. He had been a priest, and then he left the priesthood and went into uh, insurance, And Tom Dowd. And he came over one day and asked me if I wanted to buy an annuity. And I said, okay. He said, "Uh, someday it'll it'll be some income for you. And it it is. Yeah, I I live on $845 a month.
0: $845 a month you lived on. When I interviewed him in the winter of twenty nineteen, he had five years left of the annuity. Uh so that was two and a half years went by. He only had like twenty-five thousand dollars left in the annuity, uh, when he when he died last week. So he was on his way out. I find it ironic that he thinks there wasn't an investigation by the diocese. We know there was a Huge investigation that there was a formation of the Misconduct Commission in response to Levine's crimes. There were investigations and they paid out millions, and they've acknowledged that he victimized many, 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 many young men. And
2: the diocese's lawyers played hardball with every single one of the claimants. They didn't willingly give this up.
0: Which just adds to the heinousness of the situation. We talk about this in one of the latter episodes of Devils and Dirtbags, how this legal maneuvering by the diocese often comes back and bites them in the ass, time and time again, whether it be with settlements or when they sued their insurance companies, uh, when the insurance companies refused to pay, claiming the diocese didn't have child molester insurance. You know, all these levels of legal intricacies. Very convoluted legal battles, but also gives us a little bit of insight into the machinations of the church. So we see just how devious they are lawyering up. Uh, One last clip from him. Like, when's the last time you thought about the Danny Croto murder? It's
1: been years, really.
0: Really? Or any of the allegations about kids molesting? You you don't think about that stuff at all. So you don't feel any guilt for anything? No. Oh, no surprise, he's a sociopath, doesn't feel guilt.
2: He hasn't even thought about the Croto murder. He makes that sound. He, he does it several times in
0: this. Very dismissive. Yeah. Okay, well, that's enough of hearing that man's voice. We're going to switch gears here. Uh, there was a huge part of the case that came out last week, in addition to the interview aspect where he confessed. There was a letter that Levine claimed to have gotten in 2004, and I'm going to read this letter right now, and then we're going to have Hell's Acres kind of deconstruct it, because he is a little more into this letter than I am. I wish to express my sympathy for your deep conflict within, You feel things very deeply. Oftentimes you could control these drives, but there were times when they were so extreme that they were beyond anyone's control. As a youth, when these base compulsions were driving you to do things you deeply felt were nauseating, your only means of countering that compelling drive was to reinforce your belief of the shamefulness of it all. When you matured, you sought salvation in the church, but found it to be a hollow shell. So you returned to your only means of countering the effects of these terrible compulsions. You reinforced your beliefs of how nauseating these compulsions were by seeing the shame and the guilt in the expressions and in the eyes of youth while they were in the throes of such compulsions. Then you met a boy along the Chicopee River who felt no shame, who felt no guilt, who was not nauseated but rather reveled in such compulsions. Here you were, beyond the brink of control, seeking your only solace in the shame of others, and instead it was shoved back in your face all the more intensely. What human being would not have been driven over the brink in your position? Your torment must be unbearable.
2: First off, and I I can't even believe we're seeing the contents of this letter because back then it was just such a deep secret. But I remember on Channel Forty, it was like, wow, they're you know they're actually have a search warrant going into his house, and uh, you know we find out letter, looking at his hard drive, okay, and finding out about the whole thing and why write the letter that's the first thing it's uh you know he claims he opened it with tweezers and put it in a plastic bag so he wouldn't get any dna on it and then sends it to his lawyer concluding that it was from the r- disturbing and from the real killer it's obvious he he wrote this and in his pattern of getting too cute and trying to throw investigators off how is this going to throw investigators off uh I, You're about to arrest me, but aha, my lawyer, Max Stern, has a letter from the real killer. uh, Movies don't get any weirder than that. He feels things very deeply, and he keeps going back to feeling things very deeply. And... Beyond anyone's control, his drives, doing things you felt were nauseating, and you found the church a hollow shell, and then that's, gosh. It's,
0: It's also written in this weird, what we call literary second person, right? The you there. It doesn't even strike me as a confession. I don't know where you're reading it. You wouldn't get that this was a letter from someone confessing to a crime it almost like, a like an thir-
2: explanation th- of like, this is how I handled these compulsions.
0: I molested kids so that I could see the pain and suffering in their eyes. And, and
2: reinforce how nauseating it is.
0: And I killed the kid because he didn't have that nausea. I, I mean, it's just, it's crazy talk. It's ludicrous. It's obviously self-serving. And we never would have known about this letter if we follow the paper trail here. He gave it to a friend of his in the diocese. Diocese filed it away. They didn't tell the police about it. And then, if I'm understanding this correctly, during the discovery process, in a completely separate trial of a different child molesting priest from Springfield, in the discovery request, this letter showed up and then was then shared with the police that this letter existed. Then they had the search warrant. They went and got all this stuff. But to me, reading it here, you know, 16 years after it came out, it just reinforces why I didn't talk about this in Devils and Dirtbags, because we didn't have the text at the time. But also, it just seemed so obvious to me that this was another ploy, one of many, by this sociopath. I didn't want to devote the airtime to it. And then here it comes up, in the final day of the man's life, because if you read the Statement of Fact by the detective... He says that on Friday, the day that Levine died that evening, they got the letter back from the analyst who looked at this letter linguistically, along with 10 other examples of Levine's writing, and was able to, through some sort of systematic analysis, determine that it's highly likely that he wrote this, or that at least there's a possibility he wrote this. And when they got that information... On Friday, if you read the detective's affidavit that would have been going to the magistrate in order to get the warrant for the arrest, oh, we got this information and boom, that's why we put together this affidavit based upon this report, that this 2004 letter. And again, to me, this doesn't pass the straight face test. This just seemed really a weird, contrived thing. In court, this isn't going to be the thing that's going to (laughs) convict the priest, this analysis by some guy. What's going to convict the priest is his confession to the detective saying, I was the last one there and saw the boy floating in the water. That's what's going to convict him. So it's kind of weird to me that this came up and apparently packed such clout that that was the motivator, not the confession on May 5th or on April 14th, 15th,
2: or 16th. Galoni was building a case of him trying to throw investigators off uh, a pattern of this Another example, and if you read this, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's obvious he wrote it. The, the language is sermonic, like a priest. Rhetorical questions, He ends with your torment must be unbearable. It, it's fascinating more than anything. You know, He wrote this in, I think, believe 2004 when he thought that, and a lot of people, including myself, thought that time was running out on him in an indictment especially with the blood tests and the new blood tests. So
0: Also, this was the same time that uh, Rome was getting involved. And when a priest is defrocked, there has to be an investigation. There's a huge file. For the longest time, Bishop Dupre, who we mentioned raped at least two young boys repeatedly, Delayed sending those files and delayed even putting the paperwork into motion, the investigations into motion, because he feared that reports generated for the Vatican would be able to be subpoenaed by civil authorities in Springfield. So he didn't want any of this in writing, but ultimately the Vatican demanded it and he had to do it.
2: That's when this whole saga just reads like a a novel or movie that scripted it. When things are getting hot, he writes this this letter to try to throw authorities off when it it just zeroes them in on him.
0: There are so many other details in the statement by the detective. During the May 4th interview, Levine told the cop that night on Friday night, that fateful night, they went fishing and that Danny wasn't a good fisherman. First of all, we know that Danny was a good fisherman. That kid loved to fish. He was all about fishing. As we know, Springfield's a great city to live in, if you like fishing. I mean there's so many lakes, yeah, I grew up on Lake Lorraine. I talk about that all the time. It's like fishing, fishing, fishing. Danny was into it. I'm pretty sure though Danny wasn't fishing that Friday night because Danny was drinking, and we have no sign of any fishing pool anywhere
2: yeah you know, if he if he were uh, thorough in his explanations and i he'd say i I took the fishing poles and brought them back with me. You know, uh, you know, what happened to the fishing poles when you left and came back? You know, it uh, doesn't jibe.
0: And we know that Danny's mother, Bunny, called and spoke to Levine at 9.30 p.m. and asked if he had seen Danny. He's like, no, I haven't seen Danny. We also have a report that someone that lived in the area of the bridge saw headlights around 8.30-ish coming out from underneath the bridge. It was an unusual thing for them to spot. There are other reports placing Levine there that are a little iffy, but maybe not. Who knows? Eyewitness reports are hard to come by, hard to believe, especially with the passage of time. We're talking now almost 50 years, 49 years. Mm-hmm. But even in the 1993 investigation or 2004 investigation, people were aging. And a lot of this evidence has disappeared over the years. These rocks that they supposedly tested. Uh, At one point, I thought those rocks were lost. They were lost. Uh, Somehow they were recovered.
2: Supposedly, yeah.
0: Uh, I'm interested to uh, see how that plays out. But this particular thing bothers me. There's this big press conference, and this stuff is revealed. It wasn't proofread. I've seen uh, typos in there, errors of fact. Uh, You know, the date of the murder, for the record, we know to be a fact, April 14th, 1972. He died that night. It wasn't like he got killed on the 15th, but they say... Honor about the 15th, they say the 15th several times in the filings. In fact, the first words out of the DA's mouth on the press conference on Monday was that he was found in the Connecticut River. And I was shocked. Like, no, he was found in the Chicopee River. I don't know if you caught that. That's the thing. Yeah, and thing. It's,
2: it's in the statement and it hasn't been corrected. But, you know, yeah, it's pretty weird.
0: Not to be too hard on these guys, but they do, uh, at the end of this arrest warrant or affidavit for the warrant, they talk about the town of Chicopee. Well, Chicopee is a city, yeah. second biggest city in Western Mass. Kind of sloppy, but it could just yeah. be I'm not satisfied because I feel that Richard Levine got away with murder. Your perspective on this has been to investigate it fully, looking at alternate suspects, other near do child molesters from 16 Acres.
2: Several weeks after the murder, uh, Sandra Tessier, the Mother of one of his abuse victims, though we don't, she didn't know it back then. Got a call from Levine at 4 a.m. to meet meet him at the IHOP, and uh, not meet him. She he actually drove her to the IHOP, and a man flashed a badge, said he was a detective working on the case, and they're looking for a uh, truck, green trucker van with Connecticut plates, and you know, Levine had told her uh, people are going to tell you I'm a suspect in this murder. And see, I'm not. They're looking for someone else. And she says, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, everyone was wondering after uh, Kevin Cullen broke that story way back, I think, in 2003 on the Boston Globe, who is, quote, badge man, who is pretending to be a cop to try to uh, influence this woman. Part of the sex ring, there were two Boy Scout leaders, Doc Verno and Dick Brown, who uh, loved to play policeman, had, you know, bought used police cars at auctions. Verno uh, was actually convicted of uh, police impersonation back in Troy, New York. And, and she described a big gentleman, and you know Brown was uh, six foot four, and who would go out on a limb during the heat of an investigation to try to clear Levine um, it, unless he had a real stake in the investigation's outcome? Possibly was he at the scene you know, I I investigated these people at length and uh in the end Levine mentions no one even when it would be convenient for him to blame either one of these cop impersonators. They're both dead. And he doesn't. You know, the church's lawyers always insisted that they they focused too heavily on Levine early on and didn't vet the other questionable people's alibis and you know that and so I felt it was my duty to look into them. And uh, I do, to some extent, thought Brown was a a legitimate suspect, person of interest. But we know it was just one person at the scene, uh, unless they're hiding details. There was just footprints of one assailant, not two. So by this latest account, it it was just Levine.
0: As much as I think that the initial Chicopee police investigation uh, was amateur-esque, I can't imagine the conspiracy goes back to erase a set of prints. I I truly believe initial investigators did their best. Kat Crotto, Danny's sister, who we both know, says that for years and years until he died, uh, Fitzsimmons would come by the house and brief Carl Sr. on his unofficial investigation that continued. So he was fighting against the machine. So there were some good cops involved in it, but the general cover-up, The ones culpable there, you know, that's the church. I don't think the cops covered this up. It was the church. I think incompetence had something to play with it.
2: Fitzgibbons acknowledged to Carl mistakes were made, and that was not getting a warrant to search his house, to search the rectory, find the clothes that he was wearing that night, find the shoes. But as it's been said, a, a warrant in 1972 for a rectory is not a gimme.
0: One of the crazy things about this, and I talk about this in episode 13, is during the same period of the 70s and 80s and 90s, when all this was happening in the United States, there was a satanic panic where there was accusations of like daycare teachers and administrators with this huge conspiracy of Satan worshiping, cannibalism, bloodletting, molestation, murder, all this stuff. People actually went to jail. People went to prison. It was this whole thing. It was all fake none of it was true. It was a wave of hysteria. Meanwhile, at the same time, thousands of Catholic priests were molesting hundreds of thousands of Catholic kids. As we know, very few of them ever saw the inside of a cell. Levine spent one night in jail.
2: Carl reminded me, uh, and it's obvious, uh, if this whole thing were blown out of the water in 1972, other victims coming forward You never know, like, how many kids would have been saved this if the scandal had happened earlier, like it should have. Decades and decades of
0: abuse. This is a giant spider web of pain and suffering caused by these alleged holy men. I mean, this is so huge because Levine wasn't prosecuted in 1972. The bulk of the priests that I wrote about, those guys would have been thwarted in one way or another. People would have felt more comfortable coming forward. They would have believed their kids, their sons, because often what happens, people wouldn't believe when their sons said something about father because you just didn't question. You and I both know this, grown-up Catholic. You just didn't question the priest. Catholics do wonderful work. The problem is the Catholic priesthood is a sex cult, and we have proof of that.
2: I'm still absorbing the whole uh, announcement of this and then the press conference and everything else. It's, it's something that I just did not think would happen. I don't know if the Croto family thought it would ever happen at some point. I mean, they, they held out hope, but I just thought Levine would die a quiet death and this would just be still on the DA's, uh, you know, a cold case file and, We'd be still kind of like trying to hunt down witnesses who are dying. This is nearly fifty years later. This has come and gone in waves. You know, uh, not so much 1972, but you know, 1991, the early 2000s, uh, and then a lot of quiet. And then, wow, May of 2021. Who would have thought that he would virtually confess? Uh, it's 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 gone. International. I've read about it in the London Times. Um, I still want to hear the rest of those tapes in context. Could it have been prompted by uh, the trooper saying, we have, we have a witness or another witness that places you at the scene and we re-interviewed them and we, we're ready to pursue this, so you better tell your version right now or you can call your lawyer. I guess it ultimately comes down to Levine knew he had his days numbered. He sounds a lot worse than he did in your interview in just 2019.
0: I'm also angry at all these enablers that we can point the finger at, and many of whom are dead now. And it's yeah. just disgusting. I mean, that's the thing. It's a really disgusting story. And I know I'm haunted by it. And you know, I spent a good you know, three and a half years of my life on this. Uh, you've spent a lot longer. How do you think this has impacted you as a person?
2: I got to know Carl really well, Carl Corrado Sr. And he never let the church come between him and God. And I left the church for a while, uh, I think partially because of this, because it does kind of like you grow up with it and you get disgusted by it. But he, in a way, kind of brought me back to the church just to not to let them win. I know it sounds kind of contrived, but it's, uh, he, he was a great man, and uh, we had many, many conversations. Uh, we were convinced at some point in around 2007, 2008, 2009 that there was going to be a conviction, but it, it took this DA to do it. But um, I am still a practicing Catholic, and I am not going to let <laughs> Richard Levine or any of these priests get between my beliefs and me, uh, and not even the Pope.
0: I feel almost vaguely jealous of you and your faith and whatever solace you get from that, because I don't have that.
2: Carl told me he prayed for the victims, the priests, even Levine. Every night, he asked God to make the church whole again. I think what it was, this was doing to the church really hurt Carl as well. So that's where he was coming from. There's a lot you can learn from him. I enjoyed my conversations with him. I ran into him. I'm Wilbraham Road all the time, and we discussed this case at length. I'd whip out my notebook because he would have certain tidbits of who to contact, and so he was—he was a great influence, and I—I'm—I'm I, I'm with his belief, and it is oh, unfortunate that he uh, this day didn't come where he could enjoy some kind of closure.
0: Well, theoretically, if you guys are right in your beliefs, yeah. he's he's seeing it. If there is a heaven and hell, we know that Carl and Bonnie Crotto are in heaven and that Richard Levine is burning in hell. That's a, that's uh, probably one of the more useful aspects of religion is that we can have that as a thought.
2: <laughs> I will continue to write about this. I, I just dropped a post today. That's one of the good things about a blog. You can just keep fleshing out these stories. There's more that's going to come out about this. Why not expose more of the sex ring that perpetuated this? Why not?
0: Thanks to Hell's Acres for his insight on the murder of Danny Croto and the sociopath who killed him. Visit his website at hellsacres.blogspot.com. In early June 2021, a couple of days after our conversation, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield released an updated list of child-molesting priests that they believe were credibly accused of sexual misconduct and, for the most part, went unpunished. Now, there are almost 70 members of Springfield's clergy on that list, and that's 40 new names, including Father John Krakoka, whose name I recognize from my interview with Levine. Well, there are probably some things I would have done differently.
1: I mean, I was, uh, um, when I was in St. Saint- shows us in Shelburne Falls the pastor was a madman
0: and was it a thrasher no no, no. before him
1: uh well, okay
0: never heard of him yeah uh,
1: and he used to bring kids into his room and I said what the hell are they doing up there because they were up there for a long time so I took the ladder and I went up and it looked peeked in and uh, they were naked in the bed with with this guy, and he must have been eighty years
0: old. What was his name again? Klikotka. Wow, and that was in Shelburne Falls. Yeah. While you were assistant priest there. Yeah. So you took a ladder, you climbed up, and you saw witnessed him molesting children mm. in the rectory.
1: And I went and I came, I called the bishop, and I came and told him, and he told me to just not to say anything to anybody
0: about it. Would that have been McGuire? Noah's Weldon. Weldon told you that, not to tell anybody about it. Yeah, and this Did,
1: guy stayed there.
0: Huh. Would you have thought to go to the police?
1: I never thought of going to the police. I thought the bishop would take care of that, but he didn't, so.
0: Do you think that happened a lot, that they covered stuff up like that? I have no idea. Hmm. That's very strange. Yeah. That's a terrible stain on the church. Oh, yeah. This is another instance where Levine got the basic facts of his own life wrong. Father Clacoca was Levine's pastor at his first assignment at Sacred Heart Parish in the town of East Hampton way back in 1966. Father Clacoca had been a popular and beloved pastor. In a written history of Sacred Heart, Clacoca was credited as shepherding the parish through the changes of the Vatican II era. He introduced the folk mass and church services geared towards kids. According to the parish history, quote, Father Clacoca made a special hit with the parish schoolchildren with whom he played ball on the school grounds Klokoka served as pastor from the mid-1960s until he died from a heart attack in May 1974 at the age of 77. Bishop Weldon, who, according to Levine, knew the pastor was a child-molesting priest, presided over Klokoka's funeral. In all likelihood, there are not any secret files on Klokoka because the child molester Bishop Weldon probably destroyed them when Klokoka, the child molester, died in 1974. After all, it was Bishop Weldon's tradition to make the secret files of dead priests disappear. Due to this widespread records destruction, we will never know the true depth of priestly crimes and the scope of the victimhood. <laughs> Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry, theme song by Dave Gutter. Previous episodes are available via devilsanddirtbags.com or wherever you download podcasts. Please rate and review and share with family and friends. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Richard Levine Got Away with Murder, Part 2. Our guest is the wife of of a man who was molested by Levine back in the 1970s, at the time of Danny Croto's murder. We'll hear the sad details of a life haunted by abuse, and we'll learn about the subsequent damage and trouble the families of victims experience because of the lasting trauma of their loved ones.